0: morning Richmond, I might move this one out of the way as well, in case I want to do a dance or something. I'm really excited to continue on with our series this morning, a little bit bittersweet this morning because this is the final um, final sermon of this series on work and vocation. Um, it's one I've really enjoyed, hearing each other's stories, hearing a bit of what our community does as we scatter. But I want to start this morning by returning to the place where we began this series, This question that I hope has stuck in your mind, a question I hope you've returned to with each sermon, this question of, are you making good tables? Are you doing good work? What does your vocation say? And I want to repeat this quote that that I started with by Dorothy Sayers, that the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. In the last few weeks, we've looked at how our work, how our vocation, the things that we do, um, participate in the kingdom. In the last two weeks in particular, we've looked at how they participate in communion with God and how they help to foster communities. And today I want to look at a different sphere, how our work, how our vocation participate in co-creativity. I was telling our gospel group a couple of nights back that I felt a bit nervous about this sermon, not necessarily because of the content, not necessarily because it's an idea I disagree with, it's something I really love. This idea of co-creativity is central to the heartbeat of Richmond, so it's not one that I really want to stuff up. It's part of our Richmond bingo, it's something that we talk about and value incredibly strongly. So to make sure I didn't get it wrong, I started where all good sermons prep starts, which is consulting with Google and asking Google what creativity is. And it comes up with this line, that creativity is the use of imagination or original ideas to create something. After first being a little bit annoyed that they defined creativity with the word create, I then turned to the idea that Richmond, another Richmond bingo word pops up. Imagination, this term that we keep coming back to. I thought about how imagination, creativity, they go hand in hand, and then I realized, isn't there this sad reality that often when we talk about work, When we talk about workplaces, when we talk about how we expend our energy, they're usually not places where there's room for imagination or creativity. That they feel like things that might be for our recreation, our spare time, maybe for our hobbies but they're not things that we do in the workplace necessarily. But if I can skip to the end of today, what I hope to convince you of is that building tables, serving tables, creating spreadsheets, teaching children, building homes, raising children, gardening, are all spaces that desperately need imagination and creativity. I believe they're not going to flourish unless there's creativity and imagination. And maybe some of those spheres, when we say them, sound like lesser spheres, but they aren't. They're of the utmost importance. And so I want to begin by reading from Exodus 35 this morning. I'll be honest, I've read through Exodus a few times, and Exodus 35 has never really stood out to me. But I think it has something important to say about this idea of work and vocation. So I'm going to read a slightly longer passage. It's Exodus 35, verses 1 to 29. Moses assembled the whole Israelite community and said to them, These are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days, work is to be done. But the seventh day shall be your holy day, a day of Sabbath rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it is to be put to death. Do not light a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Moses said to the whole Israelite community, This is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver and bronze, blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen goat hair, ram skins dyed red and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to mount on the ephod and breastpiece. All who are skilled among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle with its tent and its coverings, clasps, frames, crossbars, posts and bases, the ark with its poles and the atonement cover and the curtain that shields it. The table with its poles and all its articles, and the bread of the presence, the lampstand that is for light with its accessories, lamps and oil for the light, the altar of incense with its poles, the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, the curtain for the doorway at the entrance to the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating, its poles and all its utensils, the bronze basin with its stand, the curtains of the courtyard with its posts and bases, and the curtain for the entrance to the courtyard. "'The tent pegs for the tabernacle and for the courtyard and their ropes, "'the woven garments worn for ministering in the sanctuary, "'both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest "'and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests. "'Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence, "'and everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them "'came and brought an offering to the Lord "'for the work on the tent of meeting, "'for all its service and for the sacred garments. "'All who were willing, men and women alike, "'came and bought gold jewellery of all kinds,' Earrings, rings and ornaments. They all presented their gold as a wave offering to the Lord. Everyone who had blue, purple or scarlet yarn or fine linen or goat hair, ram skin, dyed red or other durable leather bought them. Those presenting an offering of silver or bronze bought it as an offering to the Lord and everyone who had acacia wood for any part of the work bought it. Every skilled woman spun with her hands and bought what she had spun, blue, purple, or scarlet yarn or fine linen, and all the women who were willing and had the skill spun the goat hair. The leaders bought onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastpiece. They also bought spices and olive oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the Israelite men and women who were willing bought to the Lord freewill offerings for all the work the Lord, through Moses, had commanded them to do. You'd have forgiven me for skipping over that when I've read it, I hope, a few times. It's a long passage. It's an easy one to sort of skip over. In some ways, it almost feels like the author's going for a bit of filler. If we look at the previous chapters, Moses has just been up to Sinai. He's got the commandments for the second time. He's come down, his face is shining so bright that he has to wear a veil. And it feels like maybe the author doesn't have another high moment to turn to, that to fill out Exodus, we just go to some of the things that people did in their day-to-day. But what we've seen is that God gives Moses a vision for what his people are called to be and God puts his people to work. If we stop and listen to what's happening here, God asks someone, a human being, a creation, to build a table to house the presence of... to the bread of presence, to create an ark in which God will indwell himself. This is a high calling. This isn't mundane. And our reality is we too have a similar calling... We believe that all of creation is God's temple, that God seeks to reside in his people. So when we build tables, when we work, when we serve one another, we too have this high calling. This isn't mundane. This is what God is asking us to do, what God has commanded us to do. And in this story, God's people are bringing the materials they are surrounded by as an offering. And they don't just leave it there. God tells them, go and do work. And what is that work? Work. It's not what I grew up hearing, it was not just go make disciples of men, it's not just go preach the gospel, it's not not those things, I think they were still meant to do that, but the work God asks his people to do is spin yarn, work with stone, mix spice and oil, work with wood. God is calling his people to use their gifts towards his project and in this story In Exodus, right at the beginning of our Bibles, we see a picture of people participating with God in co-creation. People who are working, living out their vocation. And the authors intentionally place this here. This isn't a low point. This isn't missing after the high point. This is what the author is trying to tell us, is that God's miraculous revelation of himself results in God's people going to work. So this picture is another Richmond bingo word. We might get through all the bingo words today. God is partnering with his people. Isn't that verse 29, the one we finished on, just a beautiful verse? All the Israelite men and women who were willing brought to the Lord free will offerings for all the work the Lord through Moses had commanded them to do. As a church, that same opportunity is extended to us. God asks us to partner with him in what he is doing. God asks us as a community to work, as families to work, as individuals to work. And we all know the importance of partnering, don't we? A phrase I've found really helpful in my work has been, in my walk has been this idea that all of us are people in relation, that we can't think of ourselves outside of relating to others, relating to creation, relating in those different spheres. And if we try to imagine ourselves without having met another human, without having interacted with another human, we actually can't get there. Because our first step is to use language, language we learn from someone else. We interact with creation because we saw others do it. We can't imagine ourselves as an island that isn't partnering and in relation with other people. Melinda said a few weeks ago, there's these different spheres that we relate to. We partner with creation. We partner with God. We partner with others. And in our table-making... In the energy we expend purposely, in all our spheres, we get to partner with God. There isn't the spiritual and the mundane. The mundane is deeply spiritual. This is what God has invited us to. Like the Israelites, we can use our skills to shape the materials we're surrounded by, to shape creation and imagine what it could be. God asks us to imagine what it could be. And because creation is good, we can celebrate in our work. The great creator, God himself, created the wood that we build our tables with. He created the brains that are behind our spreadsheets. We never interact with something that God didn't interact with first, that the good creator made. And so when we work with creation, when we partner with creation, when we partner with each other, we are worshipping God I'd want to argue table-making can be, in fact, should be seen as worship. When I'm a physio, that should be seen as worship. When you are working, that should be worship. They shouldn't be seen as mundane because these things, these acts of worship, the things that we do, the things we spend our time and energy on, they are a foretaste of the kingdom that is coming. There's a quote I love by Lauren Wilkinson, and he writes, God invites us to participate with him in shaping the world. Isn't that a remarkable truth? That God invites us to participate with him in shaping the world. What sort of God does that? What sort of God doesn't just shape the world and let us go into it? But actually goes, help me to shape it. Have your way, You have some creativity. And we get to shape the earth by turning trees into tables. We don't just shape the earth with our noggins. We don't just do good theology and philosophy. We get to shape the earth by turning trees into tables, by helping businesses flourish in how they invest. We shape the world by helping people find jobs and helping businesses find people, by helping kids develop speech, by tending to gardens, by raising children, by all of the spheres that you can imagine. And it all comes back to this remarkable truth. God chooses to use us. He asks us to imagine what could be. He asks us to partner with him, with others, with creation. The God of the universe asks us to participate in shaping the world. There's always a little bit of a danger, I think, in the word co-creation, in that it can maybe sound like we put ourselves on a level footing with God. As if I bring my creativity to the table, he brings his, and we, we sort of compare ideas and come up to a better idea that God couldn't have got to himself. But we know God is the great creator. His cre- creativity is inherently different to ours. He is the first mover. Our life is his. In fact, I'd want to argue our creativity is actually his creativity through us. And so when we co-create with him, him it's his creativity through us interacting with his own creativity. If that sounds confusing, I think it's because it's meant to be. It's one of those mysteries. But as Christians, we're okay with mystery, aren't we? We serve a God who's three in one, one in three. We serve a God who's the incarnation, fully God and fully human. We are by nature okay with mystery. And I think this is one, another great mystery, that God's creativity is through us, that he interacts with his own creativity in that way, this mystery is a gift that he created us, then he gave us creativity, and then he invited us, opened up an opportunity to bring our creativity to the altar and participate in his work. And our creativity is expressed differently to one another, isn't it? If it wasn't, would it be creative in the first place? We each have different spheres, we each have different gifts and talents. We've heard so many great stories over the last five weeks of different ways people get to express their gifts and talents, how they get to be creative in different contexts. They go into nooks and crannies that I couldn't, that each of us couldn't. And I think too often we think our gifts are only there to win souls. And I think it is in a larger definition of that. But a danger of thinking that way is we elevate certain gifts. We think the gifts that matter are evangelism, preaching, teaching, maybe the fruit of the Spirit. But I wonder if there's a danger of denigrating other gifts. How often do we talk about stewarding our gifts of carpentry, anatomy, gardening? Mark mentioned a few weeks ago in this series this unwritten hierarchy of occupations that as Christians sometimes we can see what we should be aiming for is working for the church or being out in the mission field. That below that maybe you work in health or in social work. Below that maybe the service industry, but you'd never as a Christian go into business or work with money or maybe do trades or those sort of things. I think he outlined really well why that's important to recognise that that is false. And I think a good example of this, of spirit-filled people who aren't doing the things we traditionally think of, comes right after that passage we read. The following verses in Exodus 35, 30-35 to 35 says... I'm going to butcher a few of these names, so I'm sorry. Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he's filled him with the spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood and to engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. And he's given both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahasemach, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He's filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as engravers, designers, embroiderers in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen, and weavers, all of them skilled workers and designers. In this passage, we read that God filled people with his spirit, and that was expressed through artistic craft. Takes me back to the craft afternoon we had here a few weeks ago. Do we recognize something like that as, as deeply spiritual as what we're doing right now? It makes me think of the artwork that adorns our walls in this place and how important that is to who we are. Do we recognize that that is as deeply spiritual as our conversations? Our work, the things we do, the things we put our time and energy into, our creativity should be deeply spiritual. Once again, verse 35, he's filled them with skill to do all kind of work as engravers, designers, embroiderers. Maybe you can add your own work to that list. God has filled you with skill to be a physio, to be an accountant, to be a teacher. Each of us has a role in contextualising our gifts and talents into the spheres we inhabit. No one can do what you can do. It's a bit of a pithy line. looks like it could appear on a plaque somewhere. And perhaps it could also be hyper-individualistic to say that each of us is completely unique in the opportunities we have to use the creativity that God has given us. But I think we balance that with we are people in relation. Yes, we do have unique imaginations, unique opportunities, unique creativity, but the church is a collection of unique imaginations and creativity that comes together to partner in the King's project so my question to you is, what are you doing to steward your gifts, your talents, your creativity? In our work, whether it's employed, whether it's at home, whether it's volunteer, are we calling it in, collecting a paycheck, doing the hours that we have to do, ticking some boxes, or are we recognising our work our Monday through Saturday as our mission field? Are we responding to the invitation to participate in what God is already at work doing? Are we spirit-filled? Could we be a church of Bezalels and Aholiab's? I don't know if I got that one right. But in all our spheres, in all our work, we get to participate in God's redemptive work. And he asks us to participate not just by calling it in, but to creatively imagine what could be. We might not be a church of Bezalels and Aholiab's. But we can be proud that we are a church of Marks, Caitlin's, Ryans, Megs, Nathans, those people that have shared their stories so far. People who are incredibly skilled and who in doing so, in doing good work, in imagining and creating, participate in God's redemptive work. leads me to ask, what does creativity look like? Obviously, there's no cookie-cutter response. Each of us has to work out what it is. But I felt challenged this week to consider what it looks like for us as a community. About a year ago, maybe 18 months ago, our church started using this term liminal space. Something I can't say I'd heard of too much until people started talking about it. But it does feel that we've reached a liminal space at the moment. We're a community that's facing lots of change. And at times, it'll feel overwhelming and exhausting. But I think it also offers an opportunity for co-creativity. As Lauren mentioned, next week, we're in a new normal. At some stage this week, borders are opening. And we, the church, have an opportunity to imagine what could be, to try and tell a different story to what the world is. I don't necessarily have an answer to what that looks like, but when I look at other churches, other businesses, other communities, it seems there's two cookie-cutter responses. We either let a certain type of people in, or we leave people feeling vulnerable. And we have to choose between one of those two, and I think the church is the perfect community to say we don't have to choose one of those two. We can imagine a third way. We can be creative. We can do things maybe not the way that I would have liked. Maybe I'll have to sacrifice some things, but we will be able to find a creative way. I hope the church is creative in how we think of that. I hope Richmond can be creative as we imagine what could be, as we have conversations. We're in the middle of this process of looking for a new lead pastor. And I'm glad that there are organisations like Baptist Church that can tell us what the process is and tell us the steps. But Tamara and I have been at this church four or five years. And one of the stories we've heard time and time again was about ten years ago. And there was this church that seemed to be slowly dying. It was working out what was next. And we were inspired by a group of people who were creative, who didn't just do the done thing and play it safe, who decided to take a risk in how they approached that process who took, took on someone young and different from what other churches might have done. And I don't think we'll necessarily do the same this time because that wouldn't necessarily be creative. But I hope that process is life-filled. I hope that we're asking creative questions that asks how can we present God to this community, to this neighbourhood? And we're now looking, as, as of last week, for a new place to gather. And yes, that feels exhausting in some ways, but is that not an opportunity for creativity? Just what does it look like to gather in this neighbourhood? Those questions should inspire a creativity in how we approach this. But these are questions, important questions, but they're questions of our gathering. And we haven't had a title slide that says scattering to land on a question of gathering. And so I land again, why does any of this matter for you when you leave this building? I think I've mentioned it here before, but I have a... Um, someone I look up to who tells his own story of how he'd worked his way up the career ladder. He was in the army um, and it got to quite a high level and he was sitting many years ago in a decision room as the army was working out how to approach a conflict in East Timor, whether to send in armed troops or not, whether to risk lives to try and help some people in oppression. And there was pros and cons and everyone was agonising over this decision. And halfway through, someone turned to him and said, mate, you're a Christian. What does God have to say about this? What does your Christianity have to say about this? And he was flawed because he hadn't really thought of that before, at least not in those terms. It's a question he grappled with for years, and it shaped sort of the next trajectory of his life. But if I'm honest, I think it's a question many of us haven't grappled with. What does God have to say about the way we build tables? What does God have to say about the work that you do? And I think your answer will say something about the kingdom. Because his answer to a room full of people who don't know the king said something about the gospel. Whether it's good or bad. And whether the same happens to us whether we realise it or not. Our work says something about the king and the kingdom. Our ministry is our lived vocation. Not our occupation, but all of who we are. Our work speaks to who the king is. Our skills speak to what the king has given us. Are the metaphorical tables we build participating in communion? Are the tables we build fostering community? Are the tables we build participating in our call to co-create, to imagine what could be? I hope this isn't too strong, but I want to say that if they aren't, we are doing the kingdom and the king a disservice. My hope is that this Van Gogh image that we discussed so many weeks ago, we said it can be a great critique of religion, and I think it is. As we also said, I hope it, it can be a picture of hope, of a people who scatter into the world, doing ministry through their work, if we can, building tables that change the world, the pockets of the kingdom invade all the nooks and crannies of our neighborhood. Not just in our people, but hopefully through our people, but also in the fruits of our work. That we'll build tables that change the world. I think perhaps the my favorite part of this series has been hearing the stories of how that's taking place in different people's contexts. Um, for the, last, for the next little while, this will probably be the last story we tell because we're starting our Advent series, but I hope this is something we can return to, telling stories. i encourage you, over coffee, ask each other your story of work, what the kingdom looks like in each other's contexts. Because even I've found listening to the last five weeks, I could have told you those people's job title, maybe their job description, but I wouldn't have been able to tell you how the kingdom breaks in. So listening well to those stories help us work out how we can create in our contexts. I'm going to invite Gianna up to tell us a little of her story, what the kingdom looks like, breaking into her work and vocation. Gianna, could you just tell us a little bit of what a normal week looks like in your world? Yeah, sure. So I also took some notes because I knew
1: that I would get nervous and would forget things. So, um, yeah. Pardon? Oh. Hello? Uh, sorry I took some notes because I knew I'd uh, forget some things so um, I think the first part of that question is I don't really have a normal week at work (laughs) Um, basically I guess I spend a significant part of my um, my week and the reason that David and I moved to Adelaide um, was for me to pursue specialty training in special needs dentistry Um, so I guess for those of you who don't know it's kind of like in medicine where you have GPs and if you have a particular problem, you get referred to a cardiologist if you have a heart problem or a gastroenterologist if you have a gut problem. Similarly in dentistry, um, there are specialty areas as well. So I guess the remit of what I do, um, so I deal with a lot of medically complex patients. So the ones who would be too, you could always say risky or um, there's certain um, circumstances around right. why they wouldn't be able to be seen in, in general practice. Um, so, um, I deal with, a lot with head and neck cancer in particular, and that's my area of interest and my area of research. Um, I also um, do a lot of workup for people who are about to have transplants, um, so they're about to get really immunosuppressed, and so um, we've got to clear them of infections, um, and a lot of dental problems are infections, so before their immune system basically gets completely debunked. Um, yeah, a lot of cardiac surgery workups, and people just lots of various. Um, comorbidities. Um, I guess what people traditionally think of special needs dentistry is also disability as well so that's both intellectual disability so I tend to deal more with the severe end of that spectrum um, as well as people with neurodegenerative disorders like Huntington's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis all those sort of things. Um, Geriatric dentistry so going into aged care homes and doing domiciliary mobile care there and doing a lot of -of end-of-life care um, and also um, dental anxiety and phobia as well. So, I mean, lots of people are scared of going to the dentist, but we're talking like those, like those actual psychiatric phobias where, um, you know, if they knew there was a needle in the room, they wouldn't be able to walk into that room um, and that sort of thing. So I guess it's sort of... I feel like it's a bit like the TV show House where I, I wouldn't say I see only the weird and wonderful because that's not really a nice way to put it, but the unusual and the wonderful is probably, um, probably what I see, really. So, yeah, so... Um, because of that, yeah, there's a whole different bunch of rotations that I go on as, as a result of being able to cover all those areas.
0: Fantastic. So you could you tell us a bit how you landed there, what your history and journey of work and vocation has looked like?
1: Yeah, so um, I suppose in terms of, um, I guess a lot of people ask how did I fall into to special needs dentistry because it's quite niche and it's and it's, and it's I guess, not really... An area that most people, when they do dentistry, think of because it's 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 not particularly glamorous in the sense that it's it's not sexy. It's not the cosmetic whitening, straightening, implants, all those sort of things that people like to um, I guess go into the field for. Um, but I guess basically um, it was a mix of things. Like I suppose you know this real passion for social justice and um, and and meeting health inequalities because it's really well known that people with disability. Um, Have significant oral health disparities compared to, um, I guess, the general population. And I suppose also when people ask me, I also throw in there, like you know, I, I, I come from a Christian background, like in terms of in terms of my values, um, you know, caring for your neighbour, caring for the vulnerable populations. And so I guess that's that's probably how I sort of landed into it. And also, sort of God's timing, opportunities, He's, he's woven into into this uh, into my life. So I guess I started when I was in year twelve. Um, I volunteered for a camp for I um, just like a like a camp for children with disability and, and and special needs and so that led me in my during my part time job um, going through uni. Well, I initially started volunteering for a respite centre um, for children with special needs um, at an Australian Red Cross um, that Red respite centre, which eventually led to me being offered a part time job there, and that became my part time job going through dental school. So. Um, that it was compl- my my interest in special needs was completely different to what I was well at the time I thought was completely different to what I was studying at university, um, and then I suppose um, yeah I I never um, I never knew that it even was a special needs so um, yeah so I, I uh, until my final year when I when I heard about it and so I did my my elective in um, a final year elective in Melbourne and Sydney um, where they were the only two dental schools at the time which were offering um, training and so I got to meet Various people there, and that was um, yeah, that was really great in getting to see this real passion that people had for for helping more vulnerable patient groups as well. And so, um, as it turns out, my first job when I um, when I when I finished um, was to work in a um, a government clinic um, that purely was only for I guess people with um, severe intellectual disabilities. And the timing of that and God's provision in providing that was was really amazing because. It was at a time when, at the time, I happened to know um, who the unit manager was then, and he basically created this part-time job, which um, is, as, you, as, you, as people who work in government know, it can be quite difficult because of budgets and you know, uh, timings and all those sort of things that, what, what's, what's on the agenda for what they want to prioritise. Um, so, that was really great, and, that, and now I know that it is, has been hard difficult for people who want to go into that area to, to get a job there, so that was really, yeah, that, so that was, um, that was really great. And then, also at the same time, um, because I was already in the public sector, a job opportunity came up um, to work in domiciliary care, so going out to aged care homes. And it sounds a bit awful, but at the time, what happened was the dentist who was working that job had a heart attack while doing an extraction on a patient. And so he was elderly himself, and so they needed someone to fill that job. And so, I guess at that time, you know, I wanted to do another, I needed to do some more part time work, and so. Um, so that sort of came in too, so that was really great. Um, and yeah, so I guess like sort of over time, there've been a few sort of diff- different sort of things that have popped up, like um, I- in terms of how God's timing has really worked in. I've worked in private practice for a bit, and then I decided, oh, it would be interesting to go into special needs, and so I um, I got offered a, I, I heard one of the major tertiary hospitals had just started a special needs unit to be able to do some medically complex work. I literally gave them a cold call and said, you know, I'm you know, this is something that I'm interested in, and yeah, so they, um, and he said, well, as it turns out, the dentist who's kind of doing the job at the moment is about to move to Melbourne, so do you want to, you know, are you interested in it? So yeah, there's all these like really sort of amazing opportunities that have happened along the way as well, and getting to move to London to do some studies as well, because um, it was a good chance to get to know David's family when we got married, and, um, and doing that master's made me competitive to come to Adelaide, so yeah, there's been lots of, different yeah lots of different things along the way yeah
0: yeah amazing you've already touched on it but where where's god been at work in the journey as you look back as you as you consider your work so
1: i feel like um it's been i feel like what i do is really what you've been talking about and um, and melinda and and mark have been talking about over this series about sort of it being a vocation like in terms of being like this this calling as well in the sense that there's just been almost too many Coincidences and these timings and these opportunities that have happened over the time, to you know, for for it to think this is yeah that it's it's, it's just a coincidence that um, that this is sort of what um, I guess trying to, especially when you know that you know these the, these are groups of people that often mi- um, I guess minority groups and people who 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 really almost are in more need of of, of care and health than, than than the general population. Um, that yeah, that he's really guided all these objects and the timings have just worked out absolutely perfect in terms of when all these opportunities have come about as well. So that's been really great. I guess the other thing is as well is in my job is because I deal with people who are often in their most vulnerable part of their life, like they've just been diagnosed with cancer or they've just been found out that they need this life saving surgery or and I guess also on the flip side, you know, people who um, you deal with the carers of people who are who have to care with for people with disability as well. Um, you know, these are people who are either in the most vulnerable times of their lives or they are people who, I guess, are disadvantaged populations in society. And so because of that nature of that job, you, and you're you also were talking about a lot of end-of-life care and things like that, it really opens up that opportunity to talk about deeper things, and not just the patients, but the, the other staff that I work with as well. And so that's been... Um, yeah, that's been really great and you know, I guess most of the people um yeah that, that I am able to I interact with in, at, at work, they they know I'm a Christian and so that's um yeah that that sort of triggers up some conversations around those things too.
0: Yeah, and then finally I guess last question is sort of what's next? Do the different vocational spheres for next year? What does your what does your journey look like going forward?
1: Yeah, so I guess um, so uh, I guess the big news for from last week is that I finally passed my exit exams for my specialty training. So that's a big, that's a big achievement. So that, that's really good. Um, so and thank goodness because um, I guess what has made things slightly trickier is that I'm actually pregnant at the moment. And so um, yeah, so that's the other. thing. <laughs> so um, yeah, and um, I guess I was in my I, I was in in my second trimester. Um, it, I was ticked over to my second trimester while I was away on study leave, so that was, was really helpful in being able to try and, and try and get through exams. Um, so I've been offered a. Um, so I guess the sad news is is that um, yeah, because of various things finishing up um, in Western Australia back home in Perth for me uh, and for, for David, which is where we met. Um, there's no specialist in in special needs dentistry and so I've been offered a consultant position back in the hospital um, in one of the major tertiary hospitals back home so we'll be sadly at the end of the year moving back to Western Australia Um, but we've you know really appreciated the time that we've had here the community the family we've had here as well so I also just want to thank you all very much for being our family away from home um, whilst we've been living in Adelaide so yeah that's um, Lots of,
0: lots of changes happening thanks for sharing all that there's a, a lot of big news going on and a lot that we can be praying with you for and um, we'll look forward to saying goodbye properly later in the year but we'd love to pray with with you now King Jesus we thank you for the stories of creativity and gifts and skills that you bless your people with thank you for Jian's story of how you're using her thank you for Um, those co-workers, the patients that she gets to work with and be a light, that she gets to bring the kingdom to areas that the rest of us couldn't. Thank you for the way that you've gifted her with skills, but also the way that she stewarded those skills, with hard work, with effort, with imagination. Lord, we thank you for all this exciting news of new jobs, baby on the way, past exams, all these good things that are taking place for Gianna and Dave. We're really excited for them, Lord. And I pray in this time of transition that you'll be speaking to them, giving them an imagination for what comes next, helping them to create, co-create in these um, new spheres. Um, and I just pray that they'll continue to make good tables, Lord. Thank you once again. Amen.